The title of this evening's talk <clears throat> is The Heart's Release. And beginning with some words from the Buddha, from the Samyutta Nikaya. It is in this way that we must train ourselves by liberation of the self through love. We will develop love. We will practice it. We will make it both a way and a basis. Take our stand upon it. Store it up. And thoroughly set it going. The Buddha Dhamma, the teachings and the practices, are about transforming the heart, transforming the mind. And this evening we'll consider one of the transformative, important transformative teachings and practices, which is classically called the Brahma Vihara, divine abiding. The radiant warmth and openness of metta. The unconditional loving kindness and acceptance. Unconditional friendship. The experience of an open-hearted connection that isn't fraught with clinging and attachment and not even necessarily with any sense of obligation. This unconditional quality of mind and heart arises quite naturally when our mindful attention penetrates the layer of conditioning that shuts us down to others. And it's also very important to recognize that this capacity of metta is present when the focus of mindful attention is able to begin penetrating the layers of conditioning that keep one from connecting with one's own bodily and mental experiences. Keep, keep us from connecting with these experiences with clarity and with kindness. So beginning with uh, an old story. It's said that the Buddha first taught metta to a group of 500 monks <clears throat> who went into a particular and seemingly very congenial forest for their three-month rains retreat. It happens in the rainy season in Asia every year, still. And they went into this forest uh, adjacent to a village of very strong supporters who offered to build 500 huts for the monks to stay in during this rains retreat. And who were also very happy to keep the monks' alms bowls filled uh, during their practice period. <coughs> And so the monks moved in and began practicing insight meditation, began practicing vipassana. It's said that the unseen beings, the forest devas who lived in that uh, same uh, uh, place, the same forest, became fearful uh, of the monks because, uh, and they felt quite put out uh, 
of their home when they saw that, in fact, the monks uh, weren't visiting the forest for just a day or two. And so these forest-dwelling devas um, began to create all kinds of frightening sounds and sights, and it's said that they were also uh, decided to emit some very distasteful odors, uh, hoping that this would uh, uh, make the monks leave what they considered to be their forest. Well, soon enough, the uh, monks became uh, quite terrified and um, it broke their samadhi, it broke their concentration, and it disrupted their mindfulness. And some even developed fever and pain and uh, dizziness in conjunction with the degree of fear that they were experiencing. And all of them felt that it was really impossible to continue practicing where they were. So they went to where the Buddha was staying uh, and related their tale to the Buddha. And the Buddha responded in this way. My beloved monks, he said, go back to exactly that same forest and practice your meditation there. Well, the monks responded to the Buddha's words by pleading that they they not be sent back to that forest, again saying that it was just impossible to practice there. And the Buddha response to this was this. He said, Dear monks, because you went there to practice, meditation without a weapon of protection. You have encouraged many distractions and many difficulties. This time, however, I will give you a really true weapon of protection. And it's said that it was at this point that the Buddha offered them, for the first time, the metta teaching and practice. Well, out of their great respect, for the Buddha, the monks didn't dare uh, contradict his wishes. So armed with the metta teaching and practice, uh, they went back to the forest. And for a while, continued experiencing um, feelings of fear and anxiety. While at the same time, they very dig- diligently and very virtuously practiced metta, which they had uh, just learned from the Buddha. Well, soon there were uh, no more fearful sights or sounds. And whereas the devas, the forest-dwelling devas, had previously been quite hostile toward the monks, their anger and their resentment disappeared when they began to feel the monks' metta. And in fact, feelings of uh, respect and welcome and even reverence began to be the devas' experience along with a sense of feeling connected, like with family. And the inclination arose for them to provide an environment of safety to protect the monks from the particular dangers that might be lurking in the forest and in that part of the world. The particular dangers could have been tigers and various poisonous snakes. And they decided to do this so that the, met, uh, the monks could practice their meditation peacefully to provide an environment of protection. So after recovering and strengthening and deepening their concentration and their open-hearted presence uh, through practicing metta, it's said that all 500 monks 
at some point began then practicing uh, samatha and vipassana, began practicing concentration and um, insight practice again, with this time with metta as their foundation. And it said because they were able to practice meditation calmly and peacefully, that every one of them, all 500 of them, became fully enlightened beings during that rainy season retreat. So the great strength of a mind, of a heart, protected through the energy of metta. This quality, this capacity to stay present and uh, connect with a heart that's fearless with a mind, a heart that's free of ill will. Gandhi called it the most powerful and the most, and at the same time, the most subtle force in the universe. Metta is the energy that allows for and brings connection. It's the energy that keeps it all together. This capacity is called for again and again throughout our practice, throughout the whole of our life. The practice and the energetic experience of metta is offered and felt as a natural heartfelt wish directed towards oneself, another particular person, or various groups of beings wishing oneself and wishing others to be happy, to be at ease, to be safe and secure, to be at peace. In the process of developing, expanding, and deepening this energy of the heart, one of the things that we begin to taste is that our own wants, our own preferences, begin to pale to some degree. They are, of course, important on a number of levels. But within this incredible radiant energy of warmth that begins to flow from our heart in the process of, of um, cultivating unconditional friendship and acceptance, cultivating this unconditional kindness and love, our personal wants and personal preferences begin to lose their usual intensity of almost always being very front and center. Sometimes my experience of the unconditional human kindness of metta is like the sunshine, that warmth of the sun, that permeates our inner and outer sense of being. We could say that the practice of loving-kindness is akin to letting the sunshine warm our heart, warm our whole being, and then at some point radiating this quality out to the world around us. the experience of sunshine up here in the mountains is really quite a wonderful experience. 
And uh, if you haven't yet partaken of it, <laughs> uh, please uh, explore it, spend some time and feel it. So where does the capacity to connect, to cultivate, to live with unconditional friendship, unconditional acceptance and kindness, where does this come from? It comes from our own experience of kindness. The experience of receiving kindness from others. It comes from our own experience of receiving warmth, receiving love that's been given freely to us from another. If you had never ever had experienced this unconditional kindness, you would have an extremely difficult time with this practice. But really, such people are very, very rare. And in fact, living beings, all forms of living beings, literally can't live very long without some degree of care and kindness being given to them. Every single one of us in this room has experienced at least some kindness given to us, some love, some warmth given to us freely. So a very uh, mundane, personal example a couple days before this retreat began, I went into the uh, Rancho State House post office to pick up my mail. And I got to the front door, and someone was there, and they opened the door and held it open for me. And she and I looked at each other right in the face, right in the eyes. I thanked her, and we smiled at each other. I'd never seen her before. She as far as I know, had never seen me before, although we go to the same post office, so maybe she had, but um, I didn't know her at all. And uh, I felt this warm uh, connection between us. That's unconditional kindness given freely in a very simple way. It happens quite often, actually, when I go into the post office. (laughs) And I do the same for others. the warmth of kindness here at the retreat center, the door being opened down in the dining room. We open for each other, we hold it open. That's kindness given freely. Very simple, but it's from the heart. And of course, each one of us uh, have experienced kindness with people that we are close to very likely kindness expressed with uh, a more uh, overt, more stronger energy than the two examples I just gave. So this is where the seeds come from. These are the seeds that are planted in us that we cultivate. The kindness that we've been given is the kindness that we grow that we water and we fertilize, that we cultivate by giving metta to ourselves and through offering it out to others. It's a circle. It's like a transmission. 
We've been given the transmission through the kindness offered to ourselves, to us, from others. And then we grow it, we cultivate it, and we give it out. Offering the transmission back out again and again and again. It's this essential and very beautiful circle. The kindness that we receive and the kindness that we give, it's always a gift. Every instance of unconditional kindness given to us involves people giving us their time, their care, their support, or in some way their help. Unconditional kindness given freely, it's a choice. A very natural choice that others make, that we make, and it has an effect on us. It has an effect on others. Metta is really the ground, the bed, so to say, that all of the other immeasurable capacities of heart spring from the other three divine abidings compassion karuna appreciative or empathetic joy mudita and equanimity upekka it's also the capacity of mind and heart that allows the whole breadth of our meditation practice to unfold. To unfold both from and into. Metta is what engenders the qualities of open-heartedness, acceptance, kindness, and patience. With each and all of these qualities really being an essential ground for us throughout the practice, and the process of liberation. When I was in China in uh, 1986, I found out that the contemporary Chinese written character for love was developed out of two ancient pictographs or symbols. The top symbol was a very simple one representing a person breathing a symbol for breath. And the bottom symbol was one for the heart. So based in ancient Chinese pictographic writing, the character, the Chinese character for metta love is breath through the heart. With the cultivation of metta, we're moving towards, or we could say inviting the opening, the expansion of the heart, the mind. And continuing with the metaphor of breath, metta is like the experience of breath moving through us. It's intangible, boundless, empty. Where from? Where to? And it's a very powerful energy that moves within us and from us. So what is it? In the Buddhist texts, it's often spoken of as the as non-ill will, 
the absence of ill will in relationship to ourself, meaning the absence of ill will in relationship to all of the phenomena of one's body and mind, however they're manifesting moment to moment, and the absence of ill will towards others. So no aversion in any direction. Meaning, for instance, no comparing ourselves in relationship to others. No comparison, no conceit, no pride, no self-depreciation, no self-judgment, and no judgment, no depreciation of others. The absence of ill will in all directions. In retreat, and maybe this has happened uh, for some of you here, how often might we think that the person next to us, or maybe the person on the other side of the room, how often might we think that their practice is just so much better than ours? Or maybe the comparing mind says, that person isn't practicing nearly as well as I am. That felt judgment in all directions. They're better than me. I'm no good. Or, I'm really great. No sleepiness, no movement. Just look at that person over there, nodding away, restless, moving around so much, etc., etc. You know how the mind goes. Well, obviously this is not metta. (laughs) We're creating a separation. Me other. And the mind, the heart, is contracted. The me, the self, looms quite large if we uh, feel and see this closely. And it's not comfortable. It's unpleasant and uncomfortable. And so we mindfully recognize and acknowledge without judgment that this too is part of our practice. And we learned that one way to attend to the suffering of separation, the ache of self-centeredness, is to offer oneself metta and to also offer metta to the other person in in this equation. One of the most striking aspects of metta, and maybe surprisingly so, is that metta is impersonal in nature. Even in relationship to what we think of as our self. What we're identified with and attached to, either in a positive or in a critical way, as our self. Our body, our thoughts, our ideas, opinions, beliefs, skills, our knowledge. Metta is impersonal in nature in relationship to other beings as well. A heart, a mind, filled with metta has the capacity to impartially embrace all beings. Not only those who are close to us in our lives, those who it's really easy to care about, or those who might be useful or maybe amusing or maybe pleasing to us, 
a heart, a mind filled with metta holds the possibility of the capacity for what can be called immeasurable impartiality. This capacity of being able to connect and to care for any being, all beings. The great Indian teacher Krishnamurti uh, kept a meditation journal, and this is a, a small a piece from his meditation journal. Meditation is one of the most extraordinary things. It's not an intellectual affair, but when the mind enters into the heart, the mind has quite a different quality. It is really then limitless. It's a sense of living in a vast space where you are part of everything. Meditation is the movement of love. It isn't the love of the one or of the many. It's like water that anyone can drink out of any jar, whether golden or earthenware. It's inexhaustible. You must begin without knowing anything about it and move from innocence to innocence. The mind, the heart of metta, connects and accepts. It's non-critical, non-judgmental. Metta has no interest in comparing or in fixing. It allows things to be as they are, with an inner sense of well-being, patience, acceptance. Metta, consequently, metta and aversion can't exist simultaneously. As each of you are practicing here in the very specific ways that each of you are, cultivating and strengthening a clear and penetrating mindfulness and a concentrated clarity of attention, some of you are also working with the practice of metta, either directly or maybe indirectly, meaning attitudinally in the in relationship to the purifying and the healing aspects that an attitude of metta in the mind and the heart brings with all of this you're learning that the cultivation of metta aids in the development of our capacity for a clear and deep concentration and also towards a strong, focused, mindful attention. As happened for the group of monks that the Buddha first taught metta to in that story that I offered at the beginning of our uh, Dhamma talk this evening. As our capacity for metta grows and as it blossoms, There's an unwinding, an unbinding of the heart and the mind from states of fear, states of anger, hatred, judgment, states of separation, disconnection. These strong, afflictive energies that move through the mind, the heart, and the body begin to unwind, 
to weaken, to fade, and even eventually to dissolve under the strong medicine of the heart of metta, concentration, and mindfulness. Someone once asked the Indian uh, spiritual teacher Nisargadatta Maharaj, who uh, uh, taught through dialogue with his students, someone once asked him, what can make me love? And his response was, you are love when you're not afraid. You are love when you're not afraid. Something that was amazing and really important to me when I began to discover it is that metta doesn't necessarily depend on initially liking someone or approving of them. It actually has nothing to do with approving of. With the heart of metta, we're able to connect with beings beneath that which we might not agree with or connect with beings who act in ways that we might not like or even might not condone. It's not easy, but it's possible. Metta is acceptance on a deep, universal level, but not necessarily approving. There's no favorites. No favoring one over the other with metta. So consequently it's not divisive. Metta is a unifying energy. It's goodwill towards all beings, all sentient beings. This most subtle and most powerful energy in the universe. And so from this we can begin to understand that it's impersonal in nature and that it's unconditional. No conditions needed to be met for metta to manifest. So reflecting for just a moment, if there was no metta in this world, this world would have flown apart, it would have broken apart long ago. There have been periods throughout human history up until and including this very moment when there has been more or less metta manifesting in the world. More peaceful times, times of relative ease in the world, and periods when the world has been and is increasingly unsettled, more violent times. This powerful energy of goodwill that unifies, that brings things together, so essentially necessary. The writer Dina Metzger said, there are those who set fire to the world. We are in danger. There's no time to go slowly. There's no time not to love. And the Buddha said it so perfectly. He said, hatred can never cease by hatred. Only through love alone can healing happen. This is a universal law. 
If metta is the ground, the basis, and the impetus of our thoughts, words, and actions, if that's what our thoughts, words, and actions spring from, if our motivations and intentions spring from the heart of metta, the karma, or kama in Pali, that's created will be wholesome and healing, both personally and in ways far beyond our own small lives, even in ways that we may never, ever know. So I'd like to now spend uh, a few moments exploring some expectations that we might think the experience of metta is supposed to be. I think that many of us expect metta to be a feeling, a, a familiar felt sense. And of course our expectation uh, is based on something that we're familiar with, with, that we're already familiar with. It's impossible to expect, it's impossible to look for something that we don't know, something that we've never ever experienced. Or look for something that maybe we have experienced, but we didn't label it as unconditional loving-kindness or unconditional friendship, metta. Most certainly metta can and, and does manifest as a familiar felt sense at times, but we can get caught. We can get stuck in expecting this. It's limiting. Metta isn't at all sentimental. It's not one bit romantic. These are totally conditional experiences. And metta isn't even necessarily a particularly juicy feeling. The mind, the heart, that's free from ill will, free from greed, hatred, fear, anger, in any given moment, is the mind of stillness, the heart of peacefulness. It's in this absence of greed, in the absence of aversion, it's in the abiding stillness and peace that metta arises. And it may not be a feeling that we think of or maybe are familiar with as love. There's really a great power and strength in the capacity to connect within ourself and in relationship to others directly, clearly, patiently, and fearlessly with a mind, a heart, that's free of ill will. We could say that this is metta, this unfettered, unconditional connection. And it's not so easy. There are many layers of conditioning that need to be seen or seen through and let go of along the way of our practice. And again, as I have mentioned uh, previously, I found over the years that the qualities of honesty and humility are essential if practice is to continue to unfold. 
reaping its most amazing and most freeing benefits. There's a, a beautiful story um, in the Anguttara Nikaya, uh, which is one of the collections of the Buddhist teachings. And it's the story of Sariputta's lion's roar. And this is, uh, demonstrates what I am just uh, have been talking about very clearly. Sariputta was one of the Buddha's two chief disciples, and foremost in terms of discernment and wisdom next to the Buddha. And this story takes place uh, just after the completion of the three-month rainy season retreat. The monks were beginning to disperse for their various duties and responsibilities in other places. And this is the sutta. On one occasion, and I'm reading it as it comes out of the Anguttara Nikaya. On one occasion, the Blessed One was dwelling at Savati in Jetta's Grove at the Anattapindaka's monastery. At that time, the Venerable Sariputta approached the Blessed One. Having paid homage to him, he sat down to one side and he said, Lord, I have completed the rains retreat at Savati and wish to go for a country journey. And the Buddha replied, Sariputta, you may go whenever you're ready. And the Venerable Sariputta rose from his seat and bowed to the Buddha, keeping him to his right, and departed. Soon after the Venerable Sariputta had left, one monk spoke to the Buddha, saying, The Venerable Sariputta hit me and has left on his country journey without an apology. Right away the Buddha called another monk and said, Go, monk, and call the Venerable Sariputta, saying, The Master calls you, Sariputta. The monk did as he was bidden, and uh, the Venerable Sariputta responded by saying, Yes, friend. Then two of the Buddha's other uh, chief disciples, the Venerable Mahamogalana and the Venerable Ananda, went around to all of the monk's lodgings and said, Come, reverend sirs, come. For today, the Venerable Sariputta will utter his lion's roar in the presence of the Blessed One. The Venerable Sariputta approached the Buddha and after bowing to him, sat down to one side. And when he was seated, the Buddha said, One of your fellow monks here has complained that you hit him and left on your journey without an apology. And the Venerable Sariputta responded, Lord, I remember the discourse you gave 12 years ago to Bhikkhu Rahula. Bhikkhu Rahula was the Buddha's son when he was 18 years old. You taught him to contemplate the nature of earth, water, fire, and air in order to nourish and to develop the virtues of love, compassion, joy, and equanimity. Although your teaching was directed towards Rahula, I learned from it too. And I have practiced and observed that teaching. And Sariputta goes on. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body, of the actions of the body in the actions of the body, and is not present, may hit a fellow monk, and leave without, without an apology. 
Lord, I have practiced to be like the earth. Where, whether people throw clean substance, such as flowers, perfume, or fresh milk upon the earth, or foul, unclean substances like dung, urine, spittle, pus, and blood. Yet for all that, the earth has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the earth, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness and loving kindness. One who does not practice mindfulness of the body in the body and is not present may hit a fellow monk and leave without an apology. But it is not my way to be rude to a fellow monk, hit him and walk on without apologizing. Lord, I have practiced to be like the water. People use water to wash things clean and unclean. Yet for all that, the water has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like water, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness, who does not practice becoming like water, might hit a fellow monk and go on his way without saying, I'm sorry. I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be more like fire. Fire burns things pure and impure, the beautiful as well as the distasteful. And yet for all that, fire has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart like fire, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility and without ill will. A monk who does not practice mindfulness of seeing, hearing, thinking, might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Lord, I have practiced to be like the air. The air blows over things clean and unclean and carries all smells, pleasing and unpleasing. And yet for all that, the air has no revulsion, loathing, or disgust towards it. Lord, and even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is like the air, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, without ill will. Lord, I have practiced mindfulness of the body in the body, the movement of the body in the movement of the body, the positions of the body in the positions of the body, the feelings in the feelings, the mind in the mind. One who does not practice mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. I am not such a monk. Lord, just as an untouchable boy or girl, begging vessel in hand and clad in rags, enters a village with a humble heart, even so, Lord, do I dwell with a heart that is humble, vast, exalted, and measureless, without hostility, and without ill will. I have practiced and learned every day. A monk who does not practice loving kindness and mindfulness might hit a fellow monk and go on without apologizing. Lord, I am not such a monk. Sariputta 
continued to deliver his lion's roar. And at one point, the accusing monk rose from his seat and arranged his upper robe over one shoulder and with his head on the ground, bowed at the feet of the Buddha, saying, Lord, I committed an offense when I was so foolish, so jealous, so angry and unskillful. I accused the Venerable Sariputta falsely, wrongly, untruthfully. Let the Blessed One and the Sangha accept my admission of offense and pardon me, and I shall practice restraint in the future. And the Buddha responded, Truly, monk, you committed an offense when you were so foolish, jealous, angry, and unskillful that you accused Sariputta falsely, wrongly, and untruthfully. But as you have recognized your offense and made amends, we pardon you. It's a sign of growth when one recognizes one's offense and makes amends and in the future practices restraint. And then the Buddha turned to Sariputta saying, Forgive this foolish man, Sariputta, before his head splits splits into seven pieces on this very spot. The Buddha did have a sense of humor. And Sariputta responded, I shall forgive him, Lord, if this revered monk also asks for my pardon. As I may not have been skillful enough and created some misunderstanding, may he too forgive me. And then the and then Sariputta and the accusing monk bowed three times to each other and reconciled. is really one of the very best medicines a very powerful medicine our human heart is intuitively naturally loving connection and kindness are absolutely natural human capacities and we see it in the smallest children I was feeding one of my granddaughters when she was seven months old giving her pieces of banana. And she took one of the pieces from me and put it in my mouth with a great big smile erupting on her face as she proceeded to feed me. A very innocent and very pure expression of the heart of kindness. Some years ago, I uh, read a book uh, about and by a 102-year-old African-American man whose name was George Dawson. He grew up on his family's farm in East Texas, and he was the grandson of slaves. At the age of eight, George had to go to work to help support his family. So he never attended school, and he never learned how to read until at the age of 98 he decided to attend a literacy program and he learned to read at the age of 98 and then he wrote a book about himself it's really an amazing and very inspiring 
an illuminating book. George describes how he learned to read the world and survive in it. So I'd like to read uh, a little bit of this book. At one point, George is having a conversation with Richard. Richard is the man who helped George write the book. And they're talking together about George, who at the age of 101 was still living alone. And as George says, doing just fine. Richard says, you're not really alone. People call and come by all day long. There's a community of people that cares about you. You live by yourself, but no, you're not really alone. And George says, that's right, you figured that out. Yes, it's nice that people stop by like they do, but they do so because they want to. I have nothing to give them, but they always feel better when they leave. And Richard said, that sounds like a riddle. And George says, it does, doesn't it? I'll tell you the answer for that. All my life, I've been good to people. In all those years, every person I met, I treated with respect. People do the same for me. And Richard says, what goes around comes around. And George says, that's right. It all comes back, everything you do. Sometimes it might take a while, that's all. I tell people not to worry about things, not to worry about their lives. Things will be all right. People need to hear that. Life is good, just as it is. And then he says, there isn't anything I would change about my life. Richard says, people worry too much? George says, that's right. Be happy. Be happy with what you have. Help somebody instead of worrying. It'll make a person feel better. It's good to be generous. It doesn't really take much to make a difference. Even the poorest person can just take time to say hello. That can be a help. Have some sympathy for someone's hard luck story. It's not about money. Give what you can, and if you have nothing, at least pray for somebody. Have good thoughts. The cultivation, the practice of metta, is metta itself. As an example of the stability and the beauty of a mind, of a heart, that's steeped in loving-kindness, I'd like to continue a little bit more with our 102-year-old bodhisattva, George Dawson. For much of his life, George endured a very pervasive racism and segregation in the South growing up in East Texas. During the time that he grew up there, East Texas had the highest rate of lynchings of any state in the Union. And actually this book begins when George was eight years old as he witnessed the lynching of a teenage boy who was his hero. When George was 65, he was doing yard work for a woman who had left his lunch on the back porch with her dogs. 
And this is George speaking. She didn't see me in the shadow of the tree, but I watched as she put down two bowls on the floor for some dogs. And another she set up on the shelf that was out of the reach of the dogs. I climbed up on the porch and lifted the bowl off the shelf. It looked good, and as hungry as I was, it smelled even better. I was looking for a chair to sit in and a quiet spot to say grace. When I looked down and I saw the two dogs eating the same food that was there for me on the shelf. There really wasn't such a surprise in that. People didn't buy dog food in the sack like they do now. Dogs mostly ate the leftovers from the table. But what hit me was that she expected that I would eat out on the porch with the dogs. I didn't have to eat in their dining room, but back in their kitchen would have been all right. I told myself that I was good enough to eat a meal with people, not dogs. I set the bowl back on the shelf. Being hungry, that wasn't so easy. I know she didn't plan to insult me. She just didn't know any better. Still, she could believe what she wanted. But I wasn't an animal, and I wasn't going to eat with the dogs. If I did, she'd go on believing that way. And maybe she would have been right. Late in the afternoon, she came by. Didn't you see the lunch on the porch? I nodded. I saw the dogs on the porch. Well, the lunch on the shelf was for you. It was a good lunch. Thank you, I'm sure it was. It's just that I don't eat with dogs. As I said that, I looked her straight in the eye. And I could tell she understood what I meant. She got angry and red in the face. But I didn't turn away. I didn't look down. I eat with people. I'm a human being. At my words, her face tightened and her look changed to meanness and anger. From her mother and father and back through her grandparents, I could see a hundred years of anger and fear coming out towards me. I stood up to it and I repeated, I'm a human being. She was so angry she couldn't speak. I waited. Finally, in a cold tone, she said, you don't need to come back here anymore. And I said, that's right, I don't need to. And then George goes on to say, I figure you can't hate someone for what they think and do, but you can hate yourself for the unacceptable ways you react to it. In the transformation, the opening into the greatness of heart, there's a great letting go, a release, a relinquishment of much of what we've held on to, much of what we've grasped very tightly. There's a great release of the contractions of the heart, the past pains, the hurts, the anguish that we've taken in and taken on as mine, as me, as I am. It's not so easy 
to relinquish this, this conditioning, these habituated patterns of our self. But really this is what binds the heart. This is what binds the mind. Our commitment to our practice, our willingness to take the journey is what affords the transformation. And certainly it's not so easy at times, but it's very, very well worth it. There's a tremendous fullness of energy which is constituted by great confidence, strength, and a very clear straightforwardness that comes from a loving heart, that comes from the heart of metta. In closing the talk, I'd like to share a story with you about a young Native American woman named Sue Ann Marie Big Crow. And this comes from a book called On the Res. It's not a great book, actually, but this is the best part of the book, (laughs) the best chapter of the book. That's my opinion, anyway. (laughs) Um... Sue Ann was born on March 15th in 1974 on the Pine Ridge Reservation. And she grew up with her sisters on the reservation in her mother's three-bedroom house. Sue Ann's mother, uh, Chick Big Crow, was known to be quite a strict mother. Her daughters had always always had to be in the house uh, or in the yard by the time the streetlights came on. The only after-school activities that she let them take part in were structured and structured and chaperoned kind. Unsupervised wanderings and then later on cruising around in cars were totally out. So Anne said that because of this, she and her sisters had to come to their own fun uh, because their mother wouldn't let them socialize outside of school. Chick Big Crow was strongly anti-drug and alcohol, belonging to the small but adamant minority on the reservation that takes this stance. When Sue Ann was nine years old, she was staying with her godmother on New Year's Eve when the woman's teenage son came home drunk and shot himself in the chest. The woman was too distraught to do anything, so Sue Ann called the ambulance and the police and cared for her godmother until other grown-ups arrived. Perhaps because of this incident, Sue Ann became as as opposed to drug and alcohol as her mother was. She gave talks on the subject to school and youth groups and even made a video urging her message. Raul Bradford, a former Pine Ridge teacher and coach who was also a good friend of the Big Crow family, was once asked whether Sue Ann's public advocacy on this issue wasn't risky given the prominence of alcohol in the life of the reservation. You have to understand, Rolf said, Rolf said, Suan didn't respond to peer pressure. Suan was peer pressure. She was the backbone of any group she was in, and she was way wiser than her years. As strongly as Suan's mother forbade certain activities, she encouraged her daughters in sports. And at one time or other, they did, all, did them all cross-country running and track and volleyball and cheerleading and basketball and softball. 
When Sue Ann was in the fifth grade, she heard somewhere that to improve your dribbling, you should bounce a basketball a thousand times a day with each hand. So she performed this daily exercise faithfully on the cement floor of the patio, her mother and sisters getting very tired of the sound. So for variety, she would shoot layups against the gutter and the drain pipes until they came loose from the house and had to be repaired. Some people who live in cities and towns near Indian reservations treat their Indian neighbors decently. Some don't. Some people in South Dakota hate Indians, unapologetically, and will tell you why, and in their voices you can hear a particular American meanness that's centuries old. When teams from Pine Ridge play non-Indian teams, the question of race is always there. When Pine Ridge is the visiting team, usually the hosts are courteous and the players and fans have a good time. But Pine Ridge coaches know that occasionally at away games, their kids will be insulted, their fans will feel unwelcome, the host gym will be dense with hostility, and the referees will call fouls on Indian players every every chance they get. Sometimes in a game between Indian and non-Indian teams, the difference in race becomes an important and distracting part of the event. One place where Pine Ridge teams sometimes got harassed was the high school gymnasium in Leed, South Dakota. In the fall, the, in the late 1980s, the Pine Ridge Lady Thorpes, the basketball team, went to Leed to play a basketball game. And Sue Ann was a full member of the team by then. She was a freshman, 14 years old. Getting ready in the locker room, the Pine Ridge girls could hear the din from the lead fans. They were yelling fake Indian war cries. The usual plan for pre-game warm-up was for the visiting team to run onto the court in a line, take a lap or two around the floor, shoot some baskets, and then go to their bench bench at courtside. And then, then after that, the home team would come out and do the same, and then the game would begin. Usually, the Lady Thorpes lined up for their entry more or less according to height, which meant that the senior, Donnie DeCorey, one of the tallest, went first. As the team waited in the hallway uh, leading from the locker room, the heckling got louder, and some of the fans were waving food stamps, a reference to the reservation receiving federal aid. Others were yelling, where's the cheese? the joke being that if Indians were lining up, it must be to get some commodity cheese. The lead high school band joined in with fake Indian drumming and a fake Indian tune. Donnie DeCorey looked out the door and told her teammates, I can't handle this. Sue Ann quickly offered to go first in her place. She was so eager that Donnie became suspicious Don't embarrass us, Donnie told her. Sue Ann said, I won't. I won't embarrass you. So Donnie gave her the ball, and Sue Ann stood first in line. She came running out onto the court, dribbling the basketball, with her teammates running behind. On the court, the noise was deafening. Sue Ann went right down the middle and suddenly stopped when she got to center court. And her teammates were kind of taken by surprise, and some of them bumped into each other. 
Zwan turned to Donnie DeCorey and tossed her the ball. And then she stepped into the jump ball circle at center court, facing the lead fans. She unbuttoned her warm-up jacket, took it off, and draped it over her shoulders and began to do the Lakota shawl dance. Suanne knew all of the traditional dances. She had competed in many powwows as a little girl. And the dance she chose was a young woman's dance, graceful, modest, and a show-offy all at the same time. I couldn't believe it. She was powwowing like get down, Donnie DeCorey recalls. And then Sue Ann started to sing. And she began to sing in Lakota, swaying back and forth in the jump ball circle, doing the shawl dance and using her warm-up jacket for a shawl. And the crowd went completely silent. All that stuff the lead fans were yelling, it was like she reversed it somehow, a teammate said. In the sudden quiet, all they could hear was her Lakota song. Swan dropped her jacket, took the ball from Donnie DeCorey, and ran a lap around the court, dribbling expertly and fast. And the audience began to cheer and applaud. And she sprinted up to the basket, went up in the air and laid the ball through the hoop, with the fans cheering very loudly. And of course, Pine Ridge went on to win the game. The person who transmitted this story said that he couldn't find evidence of a single act as elegant, as generous, or as transcendent as Sue Ann's dance at center court in the gym at Lead. And I agree. That was Sue Ann's lion's roar. And a very a short poem from Hafiz. He calls it, The Sun Never Says. Even after all this time, the sun never says to the earth, you owe me. Look what happens with a love like that. It lights up the whole sky. There's a fullness of energy and a confident way to walk our human path when the feeling of loving-kindness is strong. The Buddha called this tremendous fullness of energy the lion's roar. And he said that when he himself spoke, it was like the lion's roar in the jungle because the power of his words was born out of loving care and great compassion. The real results of practice often come as a surprise. You encounter a difficult situation. You do what seems to come naturally. And then after the fact, you realize 
that you handle the situation very differently from the way you used to. The natural, effortless expression of a clearly focused, mindful awareness, loving-kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity is the true result. At the time you do what seems perfectly natural. It's no big deal. You might say to a friend who, in fact, might have asked you how you were able to stay present and do what needed to be done. But it, in a way, it is a big deal because the natural expression of these qualities changes your life and the lives of everyone you encounter. So closing the talk with an excerpt uh, from a poem uh, by Mary Oliver. This is an excerpt uh, with a po- from a poem called To Begin With the Sweet Grass. What I loved in the beginning, I think, was mostly myself. Never mind that I had to, since somebody had to. That was many years ago. Since then, I have gone out from my confinements through with difficulty. I mean, the ones who thought to rule my heart, I cast them out. I put them on the mush pile. They will be nourishment somehow. Everything is nourishment somehow or other. And I have become the child of the clouds and of hope. I have become the friend of the enemy, whoever that is. I have become older, and cherishing what I have learned, I have become younger. And what do I risk to tell you this, which is all I know? Love yourself. Then forget it. Then love the world. And let's sit together for just quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.